Men, we live in a day where only four out of 10 Americans understand the basics of American history. And you have heard the saying, those who cannot remember the past are destined to repeat it. But why do we need to learn history and understand the basics? How does it help us men live better? My guest for this show is going to answer all of these questions. So today we are diving into some incredible men of history, pre-Christian men of Rome actually, to learn some fascinating stories and understand how they displayed virtue against incredible odds. So stay with us as we give you some lessons to better your lives through history. Thanks for joining us in another episode of The Catholic Gentleman. I am grateful that you are here. I'm your host, John Heinen, and I am blessed to be joined by a good friend and great man, Ryan Scheel, where we are going to talk about five ancient Romans that every man should know. But before we get there, if this is your first time joining us, please hit that subscribe button. If you're on YouTube, hit that bell button so you get any of those notifications. In addition, I am so excited to let you know that we have launched The Catholic Gentleman Plus, which is a live program. It's going on ongoing week by week, month by month. We're helping refine men in holiness, help them understand what it means to be a man and to grow in holiness. We've broken it down into three categories, which is the spiritual life, your prayer, your relationship with God and all those things, your self-mastery, which we're going to talk a lot about today, and your relationships with others, right? So these three categories, which were things that were broken at the fall, we've got live guests experts that are coming on we've got mini series coming out we've got a ton of stuff going over there so i encourage you to head over to catholicgentlemanplus.com or look in the show notes and click that button if you want to support us that's where you can go sign up for a subscription to catholic gentleman plus for all the moms and uh and women and wives that are out there that like to support us we have a handful and i'm so grateful for you if you head over to catholicgentleman.com slash support obviously if you don't want a catholic gentleman plus a subscription head over to support and you can donate there and continue to help us expand the cause reach more men help men understand what it means to be a man and grow in holiness so Moving on, we've got uh, something that both Ryan Shiel and I think is incredibly important for men to understand, and that is history. And so I kind of want to start, Ryan, and talk to you about uh, why should men understand history? We live here in America where uh, nine out of 10 men know that Russell Crowe was the gladiator, uh, but only sure? four out of 10 Americans actually know that uh, their own American history. And I would say one out of 10,000 actually know that uh, anything about ancient Rome or a cursory glance. So I'd love to hear from you why the study of history is so important for men. You know, well, John, number one, first, uh, it's a great honor to be on. I love the Catholic Gentleman. I'm a member of Catholic Gentleman Plus. Uh, like you said, we're great friends, but uh, this is my first time on the Catholic Gentleman, and I feel uh, so much more refined than I do over on the slums of my show, the Catholic Talk Show. So I'm, I'm really uh, pleased to be able to be on here. Yeah, thank um, you so very much. And honestly, just before we dive into that, if you haven't checked out the Catholic Talk Show, I'm going to leave some show. I'm going to leave that link in the show notes too, so you guys can head over there. For those of you who have had watched the Catholic Talk Show, you're going to get a new side of Ryan here. One of his uh, his historical intelligence and uh, and metaphors and all these great things that uh, that he. Uh, brings to really every conversation. So again, thanks, Ryan. Yeah, sure. So I think that's a great segue because we're talking about the people that you hang around with, right? And you are the sum of the people that you hang around with the most. Now, you can watch TV. You can 
hang out at the bar. You can do things with people who maybe have low ambitions and low, I don't know, ceilings in life. Or you can hang around people who are ambitious, who have drive, who have discipline, and, you know, steel sharpens steel. I think it's the same thing with understanding history is that you start to uh, familiarize yourself with the greatest people who have accomplished the greatest things throughout history, and that sharpens you. It, it raises what your expectations of yourself should be. It also gives you the opportunity to look at what made these people successful, what virtues did these men and women throughout history have that made them somebody worth being mentioned as the greats of all th uh, of throughout history. So I think it's, number one, it's kind of analogous to how we look at the saints, you know. Now, I know the saints have a, a more metaphysical reality of being in the great cloud of witnesses in heaven, but in many ways, mm -hmm. they're also the heroes of the faith. They're the examples of men and women who have lived the faith to the highest order. So when you're looking at history and historical figures of, of, of great magnitude, it's the same thing. They're the people who have lived the human experience to the highest magnitude. So that's why it's so important to understand history. And I think our world understood this deeply until the last maybe 50 years. You know, you had your classical educations, John, which I know you're a huge proponent of, mm -hmm. where every person who's educated would learn Greco-Roman history because it is the foundation of Western society. And when we find ourselves in a time and place in the 21st century in the United States of America, where we see the Western world losing its identity, losing its roots, understanding the roots of our society and how they go back in their foundations to Greece and Rome, especially here in America in a Republican system, if we're looking at the political nature of it, the Republican era of Rome, which is what we're going to cover today, you understand what the pitfalls and the potential things that can ruin our modern world, but then also what the remedies are. So that it's, again, there's so many reasons to understand history. Um, those are just a few. Yeah, of them. I think that's really great. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate you saying that because for those men listening, men and women that are listening, that you don't understand that our society here in America is based on the Greek and Roman culture. Now, you know, and it's really important as part of our identity, as part of uh, really, I would say, our civ uh, civil and civic duty and uh, our understanding as as patriots here in America to understand not only the founding fathers, but also the principles in which they based our society on, which is which are some incredible principles. And I had um, Edward von Hotzberg, the um, Archduke on not too long ago where he said they're in Europe, they're still looking to America with hope that these principles that defined our Republic, that defined the creation here in America will hold out, even though we, they see them being lost and we here see them being lost as well. So I couldn't agree more that to better understand the world in which we're living in today, you can look at the history that has brought us here and the history that was the foundational underpinning of um, here, you know, in America. So I really think that's great. And I appreciate you sharing that. When before we jump into all five of these men, I think it's important to have a little conversation about virtue, because that's what this is, is the Catholic gentleman, right? We're talking about self mastery, mm -hmm. we're talking about uh, growth and virtue. When we look to the men of history, we can see virtues that they um, displayed and that they had outward opportunities to to either flee from or uh, set their roots deep in. And these men that we chose today were the ones that, that chose to set their roots deep in these virtues. And so we're going to pick out a couple of virtues while there are many. We're going to pick out a couple as we go through it. But before we get on, I think it's important just to remind everybody that your character as a man is defined by your outward expression 
uh, virtues versus vices, right? If virtues are the good habits that we are working towards, working to obtain and understand, and the vices are the bad habits, the man that presents and displays and works on the good habits is going to live a happier life. He's going to be a man as God created him to be, and he's going to be able to bring Christ to others. And so there's a lot of virtues. We're not going to go into all of them, but I think it's really important just to kind of um, remind men of the importance of virtues. That's right. And I think Roman society, and in particular, I mentioned this earlier, but we really are the ones that we've picked for this list today are all pre-imperial Romans. Uh, And if you know anything about the history of Rome, I'd say there's three great periods. There's the period of the kings of Rome. That's the founding, the seven, you know, mythical or, you know, semi-historical kings of Rome. Then the Republican era, then the imperial era after Caesar Augustus, right? I chose these ones when we talked about this, John, from the Republican era, because those are the ones when virtue was most prevalent in Roman society. And a lot of contemporary Romans at the time said the reason that they slipped away from a republic led by the people to an imperial system that lacked a lot of the morality of the Republican era is because they started to lose their virtues. And I think we find ourselves in a very similar place in the United States of America, that we were founded on a very Republican virtue, not, you know, Republican Party, but in the classical sense. Uh, That's why we have a Senate. That's why our buildings look, that's why the Capitol building is named the Capitol, like the Capitoline Hill in Rome. It's why it looks like a Greco-Roman edifice. It's why the Supreme Court looks like it. I mean, most European powers have parliamentary systems. We're pretty unique in that we have a Republican system where, you know, we have a Senate and we have the House of Representatives, which is pretty much, you know, analogous to the, the you know, the tribune of the Pelians, right? So mm. we are based on this and looking at the Roman Republican system when they had those virtues and their society was driven forward by virtues and ultimately led them to conquer the world of the time was their virtuous nature. And those, I think, will be able to illustrate, you know, in the lives of these five Roman men. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm just going to, you can hear our listeners that Ryan knows this stuff in and out. He is the expert. I am not. I, while I understand these things, I expressed to him in, in prep that I really enjoyed uh, getting a deeper dive into some of these men's lives and actually found myself going down to multiple um, rabbit trails uh, to uh, to learn more. And so hopefully this will be the first of, of multiple episodes. So before we get going, I'm just going to, I chose... A quote from Cicero, a great Roman uh, figure that we are going to talk about. And in that quote, he says, cling fast to virtus. And virtus, obviously, the root or the Latin word from um, that we get virtue from. He continues, I beg you men of Rome, it is heritage that our ancestors bequeathed you. All else is false and doubtful, ephemeral and changeful. Only virtues stands firmly fixed. Its roots run deep. It can never be shaken by any violence, never moved from its place. And so with that, I'd like to turn to our first uh, Rome, Roman uh, man that we want to discuss and in, in uh, the virtue that he possessed. And that is um, Cincinnatus. And I want you, Ryan, to say his full name <laughs> because sure, there <sorry>. is... Uh, <laughs> well... 
you're looking at the wrong guy either either for expertise in history. I'm an armchair historian, a Monday morning historian, and my Latin's terrible. So you're going to have everyone out there. I know anytime I try to speak Latin in the comments on my show, people say, dude, you're not good at Latin. And the people who are classically <laughs> trained in it give me all kinds of business. And it's deserved. But hey, man, I'm doing my best, right? That's right. So this is Lucius Quintius uh, Cincinnatus, right? Uh, and you'll notice that there's a kind of Roman name system. You know, you have your cognoms and all these things. Usually, the way that a name would work is that you have the given name, which would be Lucius, the family name, Quintius, and then kind of the nickname, Cincinnatus. So mm. whenever you hear a Roman name, you know that the third name is kind of like a nickname, or and it usually will talk about maybe some f- characteristic of it. It's like, you know, you know tall, j- tall Jim or whatever. So it'd be you know, Lucius Quintius Magnus, right? It means he's big. Yeah. Right? Hey, so anyway, yeah. Cincinnatus, you know, we were talking about the United States being founded on Republican Greco-Roman virtues. And to the founding fathers of the United States, Cincinnatus was one of the great models of what a statesman, a politician, and a civilian citizen leader should be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you if you look at, uh, you know, George Washington, George Washington, the founder and father of our country, modeled his entire uh, political, military, and public career on the model of Cincinnati. So who was Cincinnati? Uh, Cincinnati was born at the very tail end of the, uh, the, the, the king stage of Rome. So he was probably born during the, um, the reign of um, Superbus, right, the last king of Rome. Um, and he was a he was a farmer. Now he was definitely a patrician, right? When a patrician in Rome meant you were one of the founding families of Rome. So when Rome was mm-hmm. founded, you had a hundred families who were chosen. They were the wealthiest, most educated, and they were chosen to be the bedrock of society. And that became the Senate, right? So he was definitely of the senatorial class, but he was not, you know, one of the uh, you know mega rich or whatever. He had a four acre farm, but he had a historically um, elite family. Yeah. So he had went through, you know, all the stages of service in Rome and basically had a political falling out and was relegated to the sidelines of politics in Rome and basically retreated back to his little farm, probably doing olives or cabbages, which was pretty common back then. And, uh, more or less re- withdrew from political life. Now, Rome in this period was not a it was not the empire, again. Remember, this is the Republican era. Rome was just a little city-state. I mean, Rome consisted of a couple, you know, little outcrops on top of the seven hills of Rome and a few farming villages around. Rome was not an empire. Rome was, again, just a little city-state. And one of their main em- enemies was the Aquii, who was yeah. essentially another city-state next, by, next to them. And they were constantly battling with the Aquii. So in 456 BC, uh, the Aquii and the Romans start beefing, right? And they both raise armies. And in this period, armies, you know, maybe 6,000, 7,000 men, right? So what happened is the Aquii tricked the Romans under the leadership of the council for the year. Uh, And they started retreating. In the ancient world, in battles, retreat was one of your best strategies because— Battles were won during the rout. When somebody was retreating, then the order broke down, everyone chased him, took out the other army. So a lot of times what would happen as a strategy is people would fake a retreat, that they could then get their enemy off guard. So the Aquii 
faked a retreat through a valley, right? And then the Romans followed after them because they sensed blood in the water. They're going after them without care or caution. But what had happened is the Aquii had another contingency of troops go around to the other side of the valley and blocked the Romans in. So the Romans were trapped with no escape. Um, and essentially, like this could have been the death knell for Rome. It could have been the death in the crib of Rome. It could have died before it ever got a chance to be an empire, right? So the Senate hears about this, and just a few of the horsemen were able to get back to Rome and say, look, we are in a bad place. We are in our own little Dunkirk. We are stuck here, right? Yeah. So the Senate's freaking out. Everyone's like, oh, well, what are we going to do? We need, we need, we're in big trouble. This could be, you know, the end, right? You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but it could be destroyed in a day. And this yeah. could be that day. <laughs> so what they did is, you know, Rome's political system, they always had the Senate. And then every year they elected two consuls, basically co-presidents, I think is an easy way to think mm. of it, who ruled for one year. You can never rule consecutively. And you had two of them as a counterbalance, right? So that no one man could yeah. ever uh you know, become king again, because Romans had a major aversion to kings after the last queen, Tarquinius Superbus. So the, uh, the, the Senate was like, well, we need to do something. Um, so what they did is they, they basically declared martial law. And this is something you'll see that happens throughout the Republican period in Rome, is that they declared a dictator. Now, you know, we hear the term dictator, and we think of, you know, Fidel Castro or, or you know, some one of these like absolute rulers, but in Rome yeah. it was kind of emergency political powers, right? Saying we are in a crisis and we need to be able to cut through the red tape or the the loggerheads that might happen in a in a dual conciliar system. So they're like, who could we possibly get who is who can who can solve this for us? And they said, yes. well, Cincinnatus. Cincinnatus is the only man who's got the chops and the character to do this. So they sent a messenger out to Cincinnatus's farm outside, past on the other side of the Tiber, and um, Cincinnatus was out in his field working. You know, he's wearing nothing but a loincloth, right? Out in his field, plowing the field like a citizen farmer should, right? Because yeah. you know that's what you do. So Rome, the 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 the, the messengers from the Senate says. Um, we have important news. And he's like, is everything okay? I mean, this is kind of exactly how it went. And he's like, you better go and put your toga on because you couldn't hear official senatorial uh, communiques yep, without, without the wearing the traditional toga. So he yells to his wife, can you go grab me my toga? You know, so he's like, all right, just wiping himself off, puts his toga on. They're like, you've been elected dictator, which means you have <laughs> supreme power in, over all of Rome. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> cool. So what's the situation? So the situation is this. We've got the people trapped in, you know, in this valley. We got our soldiers there and we're in a we're in a bad place. So, okay, he now he accepts the power, full, unconditional power over everyone. More power than a king, right? Because this is an emergency. So he says, he gets to work and he says, I want every fighting age man to bring twelve spears. 12 wooden spears and five days worth of food, five days worth of provisions. And everyone's like, that's oddly specific. So what he does is he musters all of these fighting age men between you know, 16 and 30. All of them have to bring five days provisions and 12 long lances, wooden lances. He marches them out to this valley 
and he builds another concentric ring around the Aquii. So now you've got like a bullseye. You have Romans under Cincinnatus, you have the Aquii, and then you have the original soldiers. So now you've got three concentric rings. He takes all those stakes, those spears, sets them up so they can't get out, and he goes in and absolutely wins the battle, takes out the Aquii, saves the soldiers, um, even grants pardon to the Aquii, but makes yeah, them pass through under the yoke, right? Which was a Roman yeah. tradition of basically you take a the yoke you would put on an ox and by passing underneath it, you have to bow, you're humiliated, and you're basically saying you're subjugated to Rome. The whole process, the whole military operation where he was granted all the power by the Senate of Rome took 14 days, two weeks. Mm. Um, he comes back victorious and they're like, wow, we'll give you anything you want. We'll give you all the land you want. We'll give you all the, you know, we'll give you the seaside villa. We'll give you, you know, do you want to stay in power? And he said, no, I got to go finish my harvest. Returned all the power that he had granted. So and this is a man with all the power over life and death over every person who is his peer and fellow citizen. And he returned it back to the Senate and went back to be a citizen farmer because his crops were ready. Um you know, and this same exact situation happened again in 439 BC, where there was a, you know, a potential uprising of someone trying to establish themselves as a king, and the exact same thing happened. He took the power, solved the problem, and gave it back. Now, this is the model of humility. Like you can have all the power in the world over other men's lives, over your own life, over life and death, politics and money, but to be able to say. It is a tool to be used for the other, for our society, for the benefit of our society, not be something to be wielded as a personal power. That takes a lot of discipline and humility. And George Washington modeled himself after this. That's why after they, you know, the, the, um, the Revolutionary War, he returned command of the Continental Army to, uh, you know, the statesman. That's why after yeah. two terms, he retired. He set these precedents specifically in mind after Cincinnatus. Um, and you would even go on to see that there was something called the, the Society of Cincinnati. After the Civil War, anybody who was a – I'm sorry, not the Civil War. After the Revolutionary War, anybody who was an officer in the Revolutionary War was able to be a member of the Society of Cincinnati – uh, because there was such a hero to them. So you had people like Hamilton, <clears throat> who's, you know, on the 20. You have Knox, who Fort Knox is named after. Yeah. You have um, uh, Steuben, who, you know, Steubenville is named after. Uh, you know, you even had the society go over because the French helped us so much that King Louis over in France allowed people to have a French branch of the Order of Cincinnati. So and obviously the city of Cincinnati is named after him. So he was such an That's important right. figure for his humility and for the concept of that one man should not have too much power, and if he does, he should wield it responsibly and return it to the state because the state and God are who grant power, not individuals. So that's yeah. the uh, that's kind of the story of Cincinnati, and that's why he's such a good example of the virtue of humility and uh, I guess Republican patriotism, or yeah, patriotism, societal virtue. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's phenomenal. You did an excellent job. And it really is incredible learning about him. And then Americans here, we have to think about it. What if George Washington wasn't steeped in the understanding of uh, the, Ro- the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic? Uh, what would he have done after his second term? Now, I'm not taking anything away from George Washington, a very uh, virtuous man himself. But the point is, is that these were all the reasons. Like, he loved Cincinnatus. He was following him. He uh, read it and he was like yeah this this guy understood that every that the society the republic is above me you know a god in our case here as um now christians catholics thanks be to god um we understand that as well and that's exactly what uh uh cincinnatus did now cincinnatus right he did it twice he was declared right, dictator twice. twice and then both times within a short period of time he did he did, like you said he did his business and it was phenomenal he was the right man for the job because he had military history but he also had character and integrity and while we know here that our uh, growth and virtue as men is something much higher than ourselves because it is from God. Back then, they just understood that it was the right. Whether they understood God or they were pagan or anything like that, they understood. Uh, and, there, and there's a divide back then, too, where pursuing virtues were for what they could do for ourselves versus pursuing virtues because in and of themselves, they are the right way to live. And Cincinnatus chose the latter, right? That he pursued virtues because it was the right way to live because virtues in and of themselves was worthy of pursuit, not because of the, you know, the lavish lifestyle or betterment of uh, your, your societal figure or your relationships that would ultimately grant you if you did this. It was uh, less selfish, I would say, and more um, outward and more wise in that. And so, uh, yes, next time, men, you are put in a position of authority or position of power, uh, remind yourself that all power comes from God and Um, and be humble within that. And the problem with pride, sorry, I just now thinking about this, the problem with pride that we all know is when we allow it to, to just dig within us, it becomes coercive. It just eats itself. We become blind to other people. We become blind to uh, our, our role as a neighbor, you know, the second commandment as Christ stated to love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments, hang all the law and prophets, we become blinded to that as men when we allow pride to overtake us. And so we know that humility is such an important virtue and we have such a great example in a man that not like us, like, I mean, I'll, I'll be put in a position within work where I will, you know, have a degree of authority over a handful of employees, but not over an entire nation. <laughs> and then, and then like, you know, a kind of absolute power over the Senate and the council and all that. And so really a phenomenal uh, figure, somebody I encourage you guys to learn more about. And so segueing to our second incredible man of Rome and history, you got something you yeah, want to say? Um, no, no. I, I thought we were, were going to get in. Yeah, yeah good. We are. On. We're going to move on. <clears throat> you mentioned kind of the societal value put on virtue, right? So where did yeah. that Roman inclination towards virtue come from, right? Because if you know anything about the founding of Rome, Rome was founded by a bunch of – it's kind of analogous to the founding of Australia, right? It was yeah. a – you know, cast off society, people who had went bankrupt in neighboring cities, uh, people who were, you know, uh, misfits, criminals, etc. Like, they didn't have a glorious founding. Now, they would try to say, like, well, it went back to Aeneas fleeing from 
the Trojan War or whatever to try to mythologize it. But really, they were a society of misfits, misfits and outcasts. And um, that, that's the founding of Rome. And that was the founder of Rome was Romulus, right? That's where the name comes from. Yeah. Now, I'm always fascinated, though, in history. You know, there's a lot of very powerful and um, influential men who set up a kingdom, and then as soon as they die, their kingdom is gone, right? You look at this gone because it was based on the power and the virtue of their charisma and the force of their nature. Yeah. But the ones that last, you always have to look at that second, right? Whether we're looking at in the in the church, we're looking at Pope Linus, Pope Saint Linus. The concept that the power passes from Peter to Linus, that right there, I mean, Christ gave Peter the the, the authority and the, the 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 primacy among the apostles, but that it passes to Peter, not maybe Paul or St. John or whomever, that right there shows the, the chair of St. Peter being established. Or mm-hmm. if you look at, like we just talked about Washington, declining to run for a fourth term, and then you see that, you know, our second president, John Adams, right? That power passes and that the system continues. That's the test of a good system. I mean, you could have Napoleon Bonaparte's all day long, but when they die, yeah. breaks apart, Right. Mm-hmm. The second king of Rome after Romulus. Romulus Romans. was a soldier. He was, you know, the son of Mars, right? Who was born, you know, suckled on a wolf. He was a bad That's dude, right. right? And that could have cast Rome as a society of warriors, very much like the, you know, the Trojans, you know, where it's just or the lack of lack of dominions who are just it's all about fighting. That's all their society. But Rome. And the reason that we're talking about Rome as far as virtue and the reason I think that, you know, Christianity was able to flourish so well is that Rome was a very fertile seedbed of religiosity, right? Yeah. Rome had deep religious inclinations, even if they did not worship the true God. Even if they were pagan, their religiosity by nature and their natural inclination, their, you know, if you look at uh, C.S. Lewis's argument for the desire of God, because we desire God, therefore God must exist. I think the Romans yeah. sensed that. Yeah. And they were I incredibly. Could. Yeah, please. If I could, I, I just I, I completely agree with you. And I think that this is important, right, because we as men and you hear it on our show all the time. We talk about how we are created in the Imago Dei. So are the Romans. Right now, they didn't have the fullness of the truth uh, through Christ. They didn't have the fullness of the truth, even through Israel and, and Moses and Noah and, and all the different fathers, Abraham, obviously, to to really understand that they didn't have that. But they were still created in the Imago Dei. They were still created as men created by God, held into existence by God. And you're exactly right. That religiosity is a part of it. And then before we dive even further, I think it's important to point out that religion or religiosity is a virtue. It's actually a moral virtue, right? So it's something that you might not have thought about, but Aquinas even found it as a distinct virtue that falls under the cardinal virtue of justice. And Aquinas talked about that obviously religion is, you know, to render to God that which is is of him. And in our next figure that we're going to talk about, he clearly understood that in one way, shape or form and was able to bring it to the front. And it's pretty phenomenal as well, how he was able to live that out and how he was able to execute that within Rome. Yeah. And that's the second king of Rome, the one who succeeded Romulus. And his name was Numa Pompilius, right? Numa, uh, you know, is the, you know, commonly how he's referred to. So like I was saying, Rome was founded as a bunch of brigands, right? And a bunch of men, rugged, tough men, right, right. went and found the city. Now, they found themselves in a problem, right? 
They had no women, right? Okay, so uh, we want to perpetuate this. We built, we got this great place, seven hills, all kinds of good fertile ground, good hunting, good fishing. But if there's no women, it kind of dies out after one generation. That's just the, that's natural biology for people who might be confused about that in these days and ages. <laughs> but so they needed women, but there was none around. So there was a neighboring tribe called the Sabines, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at first they were trying to marry themselves. I was like, I don't want my daughter to marry a Roman. These guys are, you know, backwoods, you know, militia type dudes. No, thank <clears> you. <throat> so what they did is they invited the Sabines, the entire city-state to Rome for a festival. And when they got everyone drunk, they basically kidnapped all the women, kidnapped all of them and said, you're our wives now, and expelled all the Sabine men. And now Romans got got wives who are kind of ill-gotten. It's one of the most famous themes and motifs in medieval art. It's called the rape of the Sabine women. Yeah. Um, so then well, all the saving men are like, well, this is a problem. We are going to absolutely have to go and reclaim our women. But at this point, you know, the year has passed and like, these are our husbands. They're the father of our children. So the saving women actually got in between the Roman men and the saving men and negotiated a peace treaty. So Rome, you know, you think of Rome, their, their paternal lineage is Roman, but their maternal lineage is saving, right? That is their... That's their mother's name, right? So you can't understand Rome without understanding that it's a co-op between Rome and the Sabines. So now once the first king of Rome dies, the Sabines are like, okay, we had a Roman king. We want a Sabine king. And the Romans are like, no way, dude. We are the ones in charge here. We're the men here. And they're like, well, then we're not going along. So you almost, again, this is one of those things where Rome might not have existed because the very fabric of their society could have been torn apart in that first succession. So finally they come to a compromise saying... The saving said, Rome, you can pick. Your Senate can pick whoever you want, but it has to be a saving. Cool. So the Romans picked a very kind of peculiar and very odd bird in Numa Pompilius. He was known for walking by himself quietly in meditation. He was known as being very austere, very religious, very ritualistic, making sure that he was always fulfilling his obligations. And this is a pretty big departure from Romulus who would kill his own brother and, you know, drink wolf milk and, you know, climb fences and kill people, right? This is a very big departure. But this is the second half of understanding the Roman mystique. You have the absolute military order, but you have the absolute desire for religiosity, which is why you see in Roman society all the way through the 700s, you see them, you know, adopting every religion. You know, you see the soldiers like, oh, well, wow, we saw this thing called Zoroastrian. It's super cool. All right. Or uh, Mazda Thora or Judaism or Christianity. Cool. Let's learn about this religion, right? So their natural inclination towards religion goes back to Numa Pompilius. Uh, So as king, he established the Romans were not just going to be brutes and soldiers. They were also going to be religious farmers. You know, when you're not fighting, you're going to be a pastoral religious man who does their duty to the gods, takes care of their civic pride. So Numa Pompilius set up at things like um, all the, the order of the sacrifices, built the temples. He set, you know, we still think of holy days, right? You know, because we are the Roman Catholic Church. He was the one who set apart standard days and holy days in Roman society in the f- sixth century BC. Yeah. Uh, he also, this is a really interesting thing. Numa Pompilius the second king of Rome, established a religious office for who would be the high priest of Roman society. 
Now, John, are you on Twitter? I am, yeah. Do you follow the Pope on Twitter? I do. Do you know the Pope's handle on Twitter? Yeah, Pontifex. Pontifex. Pontifex or Pontifex, the, the, the great pontiff, that title and that office was founded by Numa Pompilius as the head priest of Rome. Mm-hmm. So when we hear the word Pontifex, it goes all the way back to the second king of Rome as a the chief Pontifex Maximus means the chief bridge builder, which basically meant this is the person in Roman society charged with building the bridge between the citizens and the gods. And that's why it's still, as a Roman bishop, that is still a title of the pope. Um, and you see all you know all kinds of people like I mean, Julius Caesar was actually the Pontifex Maximus. Yeah. Julius Caesar was the pope, you know, of the yeah. Roman religion before uh, Christianity. Um, and you'll even, you know, so I think it's really important to understand the religiosity of Rome. You can't understand why Christianity was able to succeed in Rome without understanding that Rome, from its very inception, was built on a desire for religious truth. Even though it took them 500 years to find it, you know, in the due time of, of the course of the unfolding of Revelation. But why did God choose this time and place to yeah. become incarnate? Why then? Why, in his wisdom, would he have found this time to be the time where his faith would have spread throughout the world? It's because the Roman society and Roman culture was set up to accept it. It was the fertile ground. So if you look at the parable of the sower, it was the fertile ground that it would take root in. It had the vast empire of interconnectivity in the roads so that it could be spread around. Um, In his divine wisdom, I mean, that is the perfect time for for the faith to spread. And it goes back to, again, Numa Pompilius. Yeah, I think that's phenomenal. And there's so many great stories. We could actually probably spend the full episode talking about him. I was incredibly sure. fascinated. Um, while I had heard him, I had never really dove into him. But I think it's like some really great uh, points to just uh, add to what you've already um, brought up. And we know this because of Plutarch, right? Yeah, Plutarch wrote a lot about Pompilius and wrote a lot about um, the founding of Rome. And so we know a lot of this stuff. But yeah, he he had a, he lived a very severe, uh, um, disciplined lifestyle, right? One filled and breathed in of self-mastery, if I could, where he didn't allow him himself to entertain a lot of luxuries. He didn't allow himself to entertain a lot of great things. Um, when he was uh, to be elected, he paused uh, the election. He paused the Senate and he said, I don't just need approval of men and of the Senate. I need approval of the gods. And so he started to look for signs and omens and things like that to make sure that this was the right move uh, for him before he just dove into it. And again, Understanding the pre-Christian era where he would have lacked, uh, you know, the prophetic abilities and illuminations and stuff that we have today. It shows a real deep sign of understanding of something higher than yourself. And he moved in that. And there are a couple other things that I like is that right when he became um, uh, the, the ruler of Rome, he he decided to immediately disband uh, the Solaris, which was Romulus's uh, 300 guards, right? They were the fighters. They were the blood. They were the, you know, the grit of, of the organization. But he did that 
intentionally to show that he looked for a time of harmony and peace among men, not one of battle and war, not one that would continue this sort of strife and difficulties. And, and, you know, and he wanted to send a sign too to all the men that had lived like that, that we don't want this. And so one of the other, the final thing that I'm going to state regarding uh, Pompilius is the fact that if you know anything about Rome, you know that the door or the gates of Rome were closed during times of peace and open during times of war. And during his 43 year reign, the doors remained closed the entire time. But Mm. just to give you in perspective, after he died, the doors remained open for the next 400 years. So uh, there was, again, a real great founding, like you were saying, um, on this. And I think it's I think it's so good. And everything from you mentioning him, institution of the feast days, if you will, the 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 priest and uh, the the temples of, of Janius and all of these different things were done intentionally. I know that he would go out to uh, the farmers. Right. So he would give all the poor and the plebeians uh, this land. Right. Because he really wanted the agricultural lifestyle to build up because then that would benefit society. And he would spend time going out among them to make sure that they knew that he was on their side and to send a political message or a public message to everybody else that this was important and that this is as important to the foundation of Rome and the building of Rome. And so again, that idea of religiosity or that idea of, of the moral virtue of religion uh, really was built within him. And, uh, and like you said, God, God saw all knew all and, Mm -hmm. and brought this about during this time. I think it's pretty phenomenal. You know, looking at also, there's the personal virtue of religiosity, but we've also been touching on societal needs here and kind of the parallel between Rome and the United States in the 21st century. Um, It also shows the need for society to be religious to properly function, right? Mm -hmm. Not just individuals. It's not just a private matter that you keep in your closed house and you never talk about it because it's, you know, impolite. Religion is the primary thing that holds a society together. And as society kind of gets into a more post-Christian phase, you see society collapse more and more. So if you look at uh, what um, Machiavelli said in his section on the religiosity of Rome, he was talking about Numa and he says, uh, and I'll quote him here, as the observances of the ordinances of religion is the cause of the greatness of state, so their neglect is the occasion of its decline. Since a kingdom without the fear of God must either fall to pieces or must be maintained by fear of some prince who supplies that influence not supplied by religion. So basically, if you want a free society, it needs to be religious. Otherwise, you will have either dictatorship, you will be held together by um, uh, commerce, you'll be held together by some of the crazy theories that we have out there now with social engineering. But you need that common thing and only Benefits. The only good-oriented one is through religion, and that's that's another thing that we see in our society is the need for religious adherence. You know, I'd like to say religious coherence. You know, I'm I'm kind of a papist, but I don't think that's you know in the the American system we're not going to reinstitute the Inquisition to you know have a homogenous religion. But I think as a society, we need to refine our religion. We re- need to refine that we are a country founded on, on God and under God, right? And mm-hmm. without that, again, just like Machiavelli says when talking about Numa, you will invariably see the society collapse. 
Yeah. Wow. Well stated. That's really great. So moving forward, we are going to talk about the virtue of prudence and we got another great story that we're going to share with you and we're going to talk about Fabius. And so Ryan, if you want to take it away and share with us a little bit about this, this military dictator himself, uh, Fabius, yep. who, um, who had quite a lot to offer and, and definitely brought, um, but kept Rome together, uh, honestly with his mm. strategies. So so I think number one, these stories are so much fun. So I mean, if you yeah. if you're still with us, you know, I know a lot of people like to put on podcasts and you know fall asleep and take a nap to them. So I hope I'm not putting yeah. you to sleep. But if I am, <laughs> picking it back up when you when you wake up. When you wake um, up. Yeah. This third this third one, and I think you're going to see this as a recurring theme throughout all of history, but in particular the men that we're covering here today is that. They have virtue, but the opportunity to display that virtue comes in a time of crisis. You know, virtues untested are kind of concepts. Virtues are only virtuous when they are applied, you know, in a time of distress or when the virtue has to counter some sort of lack of virtue or some sort of challenge. So you'll see that all of these men are rising to the occasion during a great crisis. So this, this third one is Quintus Fabius Maximus Varicosus. Uh, again, like Varicosus, you know, that, that means he, it means warty, which means, yeah. you know, he had a wart, right? That was his nickname. Yeah. He had a, a, a wart on his lip or a, a mole or whatever. So Quintus Fabius Maximus Varicosus, but we'll just kind of call him uh, Fabius. He, again, was a member of the senatorial class who found himself in times of great distress. And this is during the Second Punic War. Now, if we look at the analogy of the United States and Rome as kind of following similar paths, Rome had always been just you know, a collection of city-states or maybe had hegemony over the Italian peninsula, but they were kind of a regional power, just like the United States was in the 1800s. You know, hey, let's keep an eye on them, but they're not a world power yet. They've they're kind of over there across the sea, you know, across the Adriatic for the Romans or across the Atlantic for the Americans. But the thing that propelled Rome into worldwide greatness and made them the masters of the Mediterranean was the Punic Wars. And the Punic Wars are very analogous, you know, in Roman history to World War I and World War II, which found America elevate into a place of as a global superpower. So Phoenicia was really the great power in the Western uh, Mediterranean along with Rome. And, you know, when you have two growing potential superpowers, they're going to rub up against each other. And you had, you know, the first uh, Phoenician Punic War, uh, Rome conquered, right? And it was kind of a stalemate, just kind of like an uneasy tension, just very much like World War I where – hey, we're going to just put a pause on this for 30, 40 years and fight it out again later because everyone's kind of sick of the attrition. So during the Second Punic War really is, I would say, when Rome was most at peril being destroyed forever. One of the greatest generals of all time is Hannibal. Hannibal is right up there with uh, Alexander the Great or Napoleon Bonaparte or or, uh, Belisarius or Genghis Khan, right? One of the great generals of all time. People still study his military tactics today. You know, I mean, marching elephants over the Alps is an absolute madman move, yeah, yeah. but he pulled it off. So you're in, the, you're in this war with, with Phoenicia. The greatest general in the world has marched freaking elephants, and they're about yeah. into the Italian peninsula, and you're in some serious trouble, right? Yeah. Well, the first 
one of the first, I get in this story, there was a battle called the Battle of Lake Trasimene. And this is the first big encounter between the Roman legions and um, Hannibal. And Hannibal wiped the floor at the Romans. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. It was the worst defeat in Roman history up until that point. I mean, just an absolute nightmare. Well, again, like we talked about in the story of Cincinnatus, the Senate freaked out. Oh, goodness. We are in some serious trouble. We need to get one of those dictator things again, right? We need to get one of those yeah. people who can see us out of this. So they they had elected uh, Fabius as dictator. And dictator lasted for one year on the 365th day and went away, right? Yeah. So he was elected dictator to deal with and create a strategy to counter the invasion of Hannibal into the Italian peninsula. So Fabian had this, and this is why we're talking with him uh, in the virtue of prudence. His strategy was like, look, and his humility is like, I can't beat Hannibal one-on-one. I can't line my troops up with the greatest general ever and win. He's going to beat us. So how do you defeat somebody who is maybe has advantages over you? How as a man can you overcome somebody who's bigger, stronger, or smarter than you? You got to be crafty, right? You've got to use what you have, right? So he developed a strategy called the Fabian strategy and still used by militaries today. He is essentially the creator of guerrilla warfare. It was a a strategy of attrition, never facing um, the superior forces head on, always just nitpicking at them. Small encounter, small encounter here, but never a head-on pitched battle because that he knew he would lose. But he also knew that because Hannibal was across, you know, the Mediterranean, you know, he lost more than half of his troops crossing the Alps. He knew that he couldn't maintain his uh, invasion forever because an army marches on its stomachs, and you know your supplies are going to run out. So he said, you know, instead of being you know a hothead and running into battle, let's just grind him down and wear him out through attrition. He's going to get hungry. His troops are going to die. We'll take off a few here. We can't beat him one-on-one, but if we pester him and not fight him, he can't beat us and he'll have to go home and we'll save it. Well, everyone called him a coward. They said yeah. that he was um, <clears throat> afraid to fight. There was a lot of criticism of him. Uh, they even gave him the nickname in Latin, uh, Cunctator, Right. Which, yeah. you know, means the delayer, right? Basically means, look, you know, he's a chicken. He won't fight them. Mm-hmm. So as soon as his year as council is up, I'm sorry, his dictator is up, they elect two new councils. And these councils are like, we are not going to be a delayer. We're not going to be a total cunctator like Fabius, <laughs> right? So they'd get an army of 87,000 men to go and absolutely destroy Hannibal's remaining 35,000 men. And they set up battle, and they're going to go directly at him, you know, what Fabius refused to do in a direct battle at the Battle of Cannae. Rome gets demolished. They get demolished by way less troops, 87,000 to 35 to 40,000. You know, they're outnumbered. They outnumber the Phoenicians two to one, and they get destroyed. One of the two consuls dies in the battle. I mean, consuls, that would be like, you know, George Washington getting you know, killed in the battle of New Jersey. Like you'd be like, Oh man, this is some serious stuff. So they're like, okay, this is, this is a big problem. So they go back. Um, again, they're the Senate's freaking out and they go back and they're like, wait a second, maybe this Fabian strategy (laughs) was the right thing to do. Maybe, 
you know, we shouldn't be hotheads. We shouldn't be impetuous. And they go back to um, Fabius and they say, hey, you know, maybe you're kind of right here. And he's like, again, being a man of prudence, of calm, of level-headedness, doesn't take it personal, doesn't say, I told you so. He said, I just want to remind you all that I am not the enemy, that Hannibal is the enemy. And I am on your side. And even though I was disgraced and mocked for being a delayer, it's not personal. I'm doing it for the protection of our fellow citizens. And he was renamed dictator and was uh, able to continue the strategy, which ultimately ground down Hannibal and took the greatest threat from the greatest military general in history up until that point and removed it just by being prudent, calm, not being a hothead, not getting, getting caught off in traffic, jumping out of your car and knocking on the guy's window looking for a fist fight, right? But being yeah. in control of yourself and understanding what your strengths are and using your strengths to victory instead of being goaded into um, a non-advantageous uh, scenario. So that that's kind of the story of of, of the great delayer, uh, Fabius, and the founder of Guerrilla yeah. Warfare. <clears throat> yeah, no, it's really terrific. And actually, you know, we're just <clears throat> touching on a part of the story because it, it goes on yeah, with it, it's um, a lot more. Uh, two dictators. And yeah, exactly. But it is. Prudence is, is just that right reason, right, applied to practice. But it's a little bit more than that because it's it's an intellectual habit that we have to work on as men. We have to be able to see a number of steps ahead. And I think that's really important because very often – we need to be, let's just say this, we need to be men of intention, not of reaction. And very often we present ourselves or find ourselves present in a situation where we just react to it. We don't take the time necessary to think through. As fathers and as husbands, we have an obligation to protect our family, not only physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. And so can you see two or three steps ahead as a man of what your actions will cause? And are your actions mm -hmm. going to indeed cause uh, a greater love and a greater harmony and a greater um, you know, protection and in this analogy here, uh, for, for your family. And again, we're called to that. And so we have men such as Fabius who, you know, humorously enough, uh, was, was proven right, you know, and he, he was presented present presented with the situation and he just said let's let's talk about the elephant in the room here we are not going to be able <laughs> to beat those guys and uh <laughs> and so you know really terrific so i i want to move on to the next one and i am um ashamed to say that it, of all five of these men it was the least that i knew but it's actually the one that saint augustine wrote about so i want to thank ryan for yeah. for bringing that uh, to my attention and we want to talk about uh honor and regulus and so ryan if you want to share well, with I us the story give a of this man I got to give a shout out to my son, John. He's seven. And I was preparing my notes for this and I couldn't remember this gentleman's, this figure's name off the top of my head. I'm like, Johnny, uh, what's the dude who went to uh, Phoenicia and got captured and went back? He's, oh, you're talking about Marcus Attilus Regulus. He's like, that's right. <laughs> that's awesome. That's so uh, so awesome. Shout out, Johnny. Uh, so Marcus Attilus Regulus. He was actually elected consul right after the term of dictator of Fabius expired. So he was he was a successor of Fabius. And that strategy had worked, and now the Romans were taking the battle to the Phoenicians. They were no longer fighting the battle primarily in Italy. They were now in North Africa invading because that Fabian strategy had worked so well. And Marcus Attilius Regulus was uh, in command of the troops invading and 
did pretty well, was doing really well. But one of the weird things about the Roman consul system being that it's one year is that you had one year to make your bones. You had one year to make your legend, gain your honor, get your glory. And it's like, you know, you don't want to be a lame duck. I mean, everyone's a lame duck. you got a year to win the battle. And if you win the battle, if you defeat Carthage, you're going to get the, you know, the naked statue of you holding a sword in the Roman forum and you'll live forever. <laughs> and if you That's don't, right. you're just going to be some guy who was just in a list of consuls. Right? Exactly. So there's a lot of a lot of pressure on these men to accomplish things within their term, which probably led Regulus you know, we're talking about him on the virtue of honor. It probably led him to be a little bit imprudent and tried to do an invasion when he wasn't quite ready. Mm. So this is in 255, and he was trying to basically wrap up the war before his term was up because then he'd be viewed as the great victor of the, the Phoenician War, you know, instead of Scipio Africanus, who ultimately was. <laughs> so he lost the battle in 255 and was captured, okay? Now, he had almost beat them. I mean, the Phoenicians were holding on by a thread, right? And they had barely, barely won this battle. And they capture Regulus and they say, okay, we will spare your life. But what we want you to do is we want you to go back to the Senate in Rome. We're going to get you a ship. We're going to get you a nice barrel of wine, some food, probably some, you know, cured fish and whatever they eat back then. It's usually at olives. And like, we're going to send you on a boat, you're going to go back to Rome, and you're going to negotiate with the Senate for peace terms. Because you, we're going to spare your life, and you're going to be our advocate saying the time for the war is over. Mm. Right? And they said, now, you're going to go. Now, if you are not able to negotiate peace, you are honor-bound, and we expect you to make an oath that you will come back here and face a death penalty. And Regulus yeah. is like, cool, I'll take that deal. So they get him on a ship, they send him back to Rome. Regulus goes to the Senate. Remember, this is the council and says, the Phoenicians released me. We lost the battle. They want to negotiate peace terms. And the Senate's like, oh, well, should we? And Regulus is like, absolutely not. They're holding on by a thread. They yeah. are one more punch and they're going to get knocked over. I mean, they're, they're a sheet in the wind right now. Do not negotiate peace. In fact, get another army, go over there and win the war. They're like, Cool. And then Regulus is like, all right, guys, I'm out. I'm going back to Phoenicia. They're like, excuse me, do what now? He's like, I made an oath and a vow that I would go back if I can negotiate peace. Do not negotiate peace. It is not in Rome's interest. But because I made this vow, I'm going back to Carthage. Goes back to Carthage. And I think, I mean, everyone's like, wow, that's kind of crazy that you'd keep your oath. They put him in basically an Iron Maiden, which is they put him in a steel box with long nails nailed through the sides so that he could not rest. He had to stand up inside of this box. And if he even tried to lean, he'd be poked by these nails. And he died of starvation, blood loss, and a pretty torturous death in fulfillment of his vow, but on behalf of Rome, that even though his death was going to be painful, it would be beneficial to Rome. Even though he could have broken his vow and no one would have expected different, that would have destroyed the Roman trust in the integrity of the office of the council and of their leadership. You would expect that your leaders were cowards and broke oaths. You didn't break an oath in the ancient world. So this was selfless in that it showed what Roman virtue was in that it gave the Senate good intelligence, and in that it ultimately 
when they would have ended the war maybe prematurely and not won the war, they still went forward. So those are some of the things around this. And uh, we a really great retelling of the story is in City of God by St. Augustine. Do you, want, do you have that part, John? Do you yeah, I do. I, yeah, absolutely. So it's it's really fascinating. And, and the fact that St. Augustine wanted to bring this up is just kind of an example of honor, right? Because what is honor after all? It's We're bound by justice as men to give honor to whom honor is due. And uh, and those include the authority or, or rulers over us, again, as long as they're not requiring us to sin. Obviously, we know that. Um, but in, in, in St. Augustine's City of God, he mentions, and I'll just read the, the chapter here, or Forgive me, I'm not going to read a whole chapter. I'm just reading the paragraph. Um, he says, I would definitely you know, take a nap on that. <laughs> exactly. He says there, there's a, a different elephant in the room uh, from me reading the chapter. So uh, the Senate advised the contrary course since he did not think it advantageous for the Roman Republic to exchange captives. After giving this advice, he was not forced by his own people to return to the enemy, but because he had taken the oath, he fulfilled it voluntarily. But the Carthaginians put him to death with ingenious and dreadful tortures. They shut him up in a narrow box in which he was forced to stand. It was studded with the sharpest nails on all sides so that he could not lean on it nowhere without sharp pain. Thus, they killed him by keeping him awake. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's, well, it's great that we're talking about St. Augustine uh, because he's really the bridge between the Roman classical era and the Christian era. That's right. You know, he, he was raised on, you know, Cicero and Cato and Tertullian and all the, you know, like he was a Roman through and through and his conversion to me marks the end of classical Roman history and the beginning of church history. You know, he yeah. is that hinge of history there, but you can see that even in the early church. And I think in the chapter head of this, he says, look, now look, let's not be confused. Regulus wasn't going to heaven because he didn't have Christian virtue and faith in, in the triune right. God. That being said, he still displayed honor and religious honor that if it had been Christian would have been worthy of martyrdom, right? That's right. But uh, yeah, very, very interesting that, again, it's about keeping your vows, meaning what you say, providing an example, even if it's painful. Like, John, how many times with your kids do you provide an example of something that you don't want to do? But you're doing it because you need the kids to see you doing it so that they will be able to make those sacrifices themselves in the future. Amen. Amen. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Th- that's what he was doing, you know, for the Roman society and then for his own, you know, virtue and his honor of keeping an yeah. oath. Now, I don't know if I would be able to do that. I don't know if I'm that much of an honorable man, but that's why there's not a naked statue of me in the Roman Forum. So, <laughs> Not yet, anyway. So for better or worse, um, that's the case. That's right. Awesome. So our final man, one that you will likely recognize by name more so uh, than anything that we're going to talk about, is Cicero. And I think it's very fascinating to mention Cicero because it's important to note that after the Gutenberg um, press was, was created and after the Bible was created, this was one one of the next, like count on your fingers, one of the next um, pieces of, of our work of literature that was printed on it, and it was his philosophical mm-hmm. treatise. And so there's there's a bunch of quotes, you know, Catholic gentlemen's really big on timeless quotes. Uh, there's a ton of quotes attributed to Cicero, and one of them every bookworm, every um, library nerd would have seen is the one that if you have a library in a garden, you have everything you need. And... Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, and that comes from Cicero. And so Cicero had a very interesting uh, um, personality and a very interesting and seated, let's say, that, um, forgive me, a seated, uh, historical figure, but one that we do, he pursued wisdom, you know, kind of at all cost, And it's something that is, is commendable and worth a note. Yeah. So Marcus Tullius Cicero, uh, like you said, I think is one of the great examples of the power of education and the power of being a self-made man. Uh, interesting little note, Cicero is basically the Latin for, name of chickpea right chickpea so that's like his nickname his name was marcus tellius the chickpea right probably because he had a little dimple at the end of his nose (laughs) those cognitives always kind of those are always interesting to learn about yeah so cicero was now everyone that we've talked to has either been uh, talked about has been either a king or a member of the senatorial class one of those great families of rome cicero was not one of those members he was a member of a class called the equestrians the equestrian class now later in history kind of evolved into the knighthood, right? Equestrian, the horses, yeah. Tur- basically turned into the knight class. But they were not nobility. They were lesser than nobility. They were the businessmen and the tradesmen and, you know, the, the people who were kind of movers and shakers in society but didn't have any natural rights as, you know, these patrician families. So he would have been what was called a novus homo, which would have meant mm. a new man, the first person in his family to rise to the rank of a senator. And that was a very, very difficult thing to do in Roman societies to beat that caste system and go from, you know, an equestrian to a senator, right? You know, and climbing up the cursus honorum and, and making it as a nobody, you know, into the Senate. Barely ever happened. But Cicero did that on the virtue of his education and his powers of oratory. So... Cicero, I think you'll see stuff like this with Aquinas later, was a student of Greek philosophy and Greek oratory. So, you know, what made Aquinas stand out from all the other scholastics of the, you know, 12th and 13th century was, you know, his Aristotelian nature, right? Mm -hmm. And that kind of, that structured Greek thought. Well, Cicero went down a very similar path, so much that his nickname for a while was, you know, the Greco, right? The Greek, right? Yeah. And that was kind of the Romans making fun of him, like, ah, you're soft, you're you're Greek, right? Yeah. But he studied everything he could. His family was up and coming, equestrian. They weren't lacking means, they were lacking status. Um, kind of like maybe the Kennedys in the 30s and 40s, like had a lot of money, but no power, kind of an Irish family. No one really, you can't really be an Irish family and places of power, but through money and influence, we're able to climb up. I think Cicero is very similar to that. Yeah. So Cicero is kind of like that. He's kind of like those, those risers in society. Um, and he studied every Greek master, read every tome, uh, studied every rhetorician that he could and used the power of studiousness, the power of self mastery to rise in Roman society in a way that was for the most part, not possible in any other way. Um, Cicero, now, Cicero's pretty debated. He had some pretty bad political inclinations. It seems like he always chose the wrong side of a battle mm-hmm. <laughs> or a political yeah. concept. He almost always chose the wrong side and ultimately lended, let, lended himself to his execution. But he believed in Republican values. He was the, the last defender of the Republic. So he was alive during the 
the age of first Sulla, who became dictator for life, who conquered Rome in the Roman Civil War, and then um, during the time of Julius Caesar, right? So Julius Caesar, if you know Roman history, he founded the first triumvirate with uh, Pompey and Crassus. And they were basically saying, look, we're the most powerful men in Rome. What do we need the Senate to tell us what to do? They were creating an oligarchy and usurping the Republican system. That would be like, I don't know, Jeff Bezos and and Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk saying, look, what do we need the government for? We don't. We got all the money and the power. We're just going to run this stuff, right? And then we'll just pay off the senators to pass the laws we want. We know who the real power is. And that's the danger of the modern world, and that's the danger of the ancient world, right? You had the two greatest generals in Pompey and Julius Caesar. Pompey, the great general of the East, Caesar, the great general of the West, and Crassus, the richest man in the world. They're like, hey, we run the show. And they said, well, let's get some legitimacy and ask this Cicero guy who's the leading, most respected man in the Senate because he's the greatest speaker of his age maybe ever. And Cicero said no. So instead of the triumvirate, it could have been the— Quadumvirate. I mean, he declined because it was illegal mm. and because he believed in Republican values. That was probably the wrong move to make. I mean, he, <laughs> he eschewed certain power. I mean, he would have been way more influential, but instead of a personal thing, he used it as a time to defend the proper systems, the proper rule of law. I think that's a better way of saying it is that yeah. – it might not have been even a matter of virtue for him. It would have been about adherence to the rule of law and respecting proper authority and proper channels, respecting proper customs and honors. Um, so eventually, so when Brutus and his conspirators ex- uh, assassinated um, Caesar. Julius Caesar, they even shouted out because Crassus was in the Senate that they said, Crassus, I'm sorry, not Crassus, uh, Cicero, they said, they stabbed Julius Caesar and they said, Cicero, restore the Republic. Like, yeah. That's how much they viewed him as, a, as a, a rallying point on the preservation of a Republican system instead of an imperial system. Well, now Julius Caesar's dead. Uh, Cicero is still in the Republic. Mark Antony is basically Caesar's successor in power, but not in virtue because you also have uh, Octavian. Well, Cicero is using the powers of his, of his oratory and his tongue. He is eviscerating Mark Antony, saying, look, yeah. Antony's doing all kinds of illegal things. He's trying to set himself up as king. Uh, you know, Octavian, great kid, love him. Let's give him some honors and make him go away. We don't want another Augustus. We don't need this stuff. Let's go back to the system. Well, basically, it turns out that you you have the third i'm sorry the second triumvirate which is octavian mark antony and um oh well i'm just going to lose my roman card because i can't remember the third anyway the general and uh they put they put cicero on prescription which means they wrote a big list of all the people who were enemies nailed it to the roman form and anyone could kill them yeah. while cicero was in his like little cart or whatever they found him Cicero didn't refuse. He stuck out his head and said, look, what you're doing is illegal and the wrong thing, but at least make my execution the right way, right? Don't make it sloppy. Cut my head off neat. They cut off his head and his hands. They nailed his hands to the rostra where he used to put his hands on when he was speaking. They nailed his hands there, put his head right on the rostra. And it's even said that Anthony's wife pulled out his tongue and was sitting there poking it with a needle because his tongue was that dangerous that people had to use swords against it. Yeah. Uh, So, But Cicero, again, is an example of a self-made man 
who used his education to rise to levels of power to where he was able to at least stand up against the most powerful men in the world who had wealth, military, and um, violence. He was able to counter them with intellect, discourse, dialogue, and, and cunning. Yeah, no, I think you're exa- it's it's so fascinating, right? Because he actually admired virtue, right? He, like you said, he just mm-hmm. he it was a part of him, and he he really held it to the highest standard, even to the point of maybe lacking a certain degree of social awareness, right? There's stories of him <laughs> right. going around and yeah. pointing at every single member in the Senate and calling them out for uh, their lack of virtue and their you know their yeah. their vices that they display. And so being able to, uh, well, and even a step further, uh, he actually championed chastity. He actually championed Mm -hmm. purity in a time of licentiousness and wickedness, you know, all all over the place, which is so fascinating for a man to hold those ideals so strong, those truths so strong that he's willing to, you know, do everything. And like you said, he had a bit of a sense of humor, right? There's nothing proper about what you men are doing, but, you know, properly kill me. And, um, yeah, exactly. and, so, <laughs> and so I think that's, that's so, so fascinating. There's a couple of things though, like one of the things, one of the quotes that we have coming down from him is where there is life, there is hope. And it's little statements like this, that actually the Catholic church. And I think it was, um, the Catholic church is the reason why we have all the writings of Cicero, right? They protected the that's writings right. of Cicero. They called him a noble pet which basically just meant he displayed, you know, kind of intrinsically or naturally uh, the virtues which we now know by the grace of God and by the power of our baptism and the history of the Judeo-Christian religion, that this is the truth. This is the way. And he upheld those kind of intrinsically in a way that he deserved to be to maintain a status within the history of men and not just, you know, removed into oblivion or um, lost to the times. And so yeah, I think you know, it speaks ca- to him, him being able to find and pursue natural law, right? Natural mm-hmm. law is the law written on all humanity and all creation by God, even if it's not revealed to us by revelation or in the person of Jesus Christ. Natural law exists for all men and all things, even if you're if you're a caveman or if you're going to be summoned 3000 years from now on uh, on a distant planet. Natural law will still exist in the hearts and in the very structure of creation. And when you say noble pagan, you'll have noble pagans like Cicero, like uh, Aristotle. Right. Uh, Or or the or the, the, you know, a lot of ancients. And it's that they were able to discern and see the virtues through the natural law God imprinted on creation. That's a really important thing that, again, looking at these virtues is that they're able to spot, even in a pre-incarnational world. And I, we did, again, not only because it's the Republican area and they better displayed virtue, but because these people are all before Christ. So after Christ, you know, if they were still Romans and not Christians, well, then that's maybe a bit of a strike against them for a show called The Catholic Gentleman. (laughs) But these men all found those virtues in a world before Christ's incarnation. That's why they're listed as virtuous pagans or displayed those um, characteristics of them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been such an incredible conversation. I'm so grateful to finally have you on, Ryan, and one of hopefully the first of many. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm really blessed, and and so yeah, it's incredible. Anything you any thoughts you want to leave men as they uh, you know finish this episode and they're like, where can I learn more or what can I do? Also, where can they follow you, Ryan? Where they where can they learn more information about all the great work you're doing? 
Sure. So uh, you know, the podcast I have is with uh, my two buddies, Ryan Delacrosse and Father Richard Pagano. It's the Catholic Talk Show. You can find us on all the platforms, uh, all, you know, YouTube and all the podcast platforms. Or go to catholictalkshow.com and uh, learn more there. And we cover a lot of things like this, history and um, theology, but we have a little bit of fun with it. So um, I think we are the, the less refined, um, unvirtuous version of the Catholic gentleman. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of like the... Uh, you guys are the more refined version of us. Um, and I, I regret that Sam couldn't join us for the one. I love Sam too, but, uh, you know, John is yeah. one of my best friends in the entire world. Um, but if you're looking to learn more about the history of Rome, and I, I think by the virtue of you listening here on a podcast or on YouTube, uh, make sure to click the like and subscribe button right now, especially on this episode. That way John has me back, right? Because That's right. if this episode doesn't do well, I'm not going to be invited back and I'd really <laughs> like to be. Um, but there's a couple of great podcasts. I think you look at Mike Duncan's history of Rome. This was done mm. about 10 years ago. He does the entire history of Rome. Amazing, comprehensive job. Uh, it's free. So worth it. I think you can look at some of, if you're looking for the kind of the Republican era, I think you look at a podcast. It's I think four part podcast by, um, hardcore history, um, called the death Rose of the Republic, uh, Great yeah, one. Dan, Dan and then the classical yeah. work, Dan Carlin, yeah. And then yeah. the all-time classic work on the matter, um, if you're looking for more history of Rome, there's, well, Mary Beard is a great one. But then there's Edward Gibbons, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. But learn about history. Learn about Rome. Learn about the things that are interesting because, really, it shows you the best examples of virtue and vice throughout history. It shows you what to do and what not to do. It gives you all those lessons that you might have to learn otherwise a hard way. Yeah. So as a society, we can see things that cause the downfalls of society and cause the ascent of other societies. As a man, we can see the things that created great men and destroyed other men. We can see the things that created lasting effect, and we can see the things that destroyed legacies. We can see the things that made a man's name live on through history and things that made a man's name be cursed and blotted out from memory. And you'll always see that it's these virtues and virtues don't change. Virtues are not something that are malleable with time. A virtuous man would be virtuous in the third century BC and in today's world. What's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And it doesn't matter on popular opinion. And you can see that throughout the course of history. So by studying history, there's so much benefit to it. Uh, and read it with your kids, too, man. Kids love history, boys and girls. Yeah. They love knowing that stuff. It's one of the most fascinating things. And I think even if you look at like young people's attraction to more traditional forms of the Mass, whether it's the Tridentine Mass or, or, or John, you know, the Ordinariate, they want yeah. those things that the world cannot provide. And those things are traditions because those are the things that our ancestors have left to us, right? Those are the things that are the flames of of our ancestors still burning, not the smoke and the, of the dying embers. And people are, young people are attracted to that because it's something counter to the world. It's something true, authentic, and tested by time. So for the same reason young people like traditional Catholic devotions, this is the same reason that they're going to like history. And I think that they play well together in the education of the young and also in the establishment of virtue in yourself and in the society and the way you handle yourself. So uh, I can't recommend it enough. And, and John, it's, you know, great pleasure to have been on the Catholic gentleman. And I just want to vouch that I am a member of the Catholic gentleman. Plus I saw that and I joined. So I'd recommend everyone do the same thing as well. 
Thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate it. It has been an honor having you on, and I am grateful. And I want to end with a quote here from Cicero. I started with a quote, and I want to end with a quote. The earlier quote was Cicero uh, encouraging men and um, extolling men to to practice, or extolling men who practice virtue and encouraging you to do so. And I want to finish here with a quote from Cicero, is that the life of the dead is placed in the memory of the living. And that's us men. And so we need to uh, better understand those things so that we can better understand virtue we can better understand when it presents itself in our lives so that we can live it truthfully and we can live it for christ and and for others and so again thank you so much ryan for joining me today and as we end each of our episodes be a man be a saint